Hey everyone, it's me again and we're back in John 15 talking all things vines, branches and fruit today. And I wish we all had a better understanding of the context of John 15, that we'd all grown up on a wine farm or worked in a vineyard in the past. But because we haven't, I asked a friend of mine, his name is Jesse Greaves, he's a bit of an amateur urban viticulturalist, just to share a little bit about his story with us. Now he has been tending vines for the last seven or so years in the lovely Pine Town wine region, that's where his vine is based. And he's learned a lot about tending vines and bearing fruit in that time. And I just thought he could help us to understand a little bit more what's going on in this passage, the mind of the vine dresser or the gardener or the viticulturalist, and at the same time, help us to see the relevance of this passage for our lives. So hopefully you will enjoy what he's got to share this morning. Well, hey, Harbour City. My name is Jesse and Grant asked me to prepare and share a little bit this morning on my experience as an urban viticulturalist as you go through your series on John 15. I got into hobby viticulture after going on a church mission trip in 2013 in a not-so-spiritual conversation around a real grapevine, and I had expressed a little bit of my interest in wanting to give viticulture a go. A commercial landscaper who was on the mission trip with us had told me that she was busy planting a vineyard for a client of hers and that she had a leftover vine to give me. And I guess when life gives you grapevines, you learn very quickly how to manage and tend to a grapevine. I did what any good millennial does. I scoured the internet for ebooks, university notes, uh, blog posts, and countless YouTube videos and to learn as much as I could about tending to grapevines and how I could look after this one. I guess it must have worked because after seven years of experience, I seem to have some healthy grapevines that are bearing much fruit and are doing what they are meant to do. But what I could do this morning is take you through a couple of seasonal steps that I undergo as a viticulturalist to prepare the grapevine and to bring it to a place of producing much fruit. Not just much fruit, but good quality fruit. My season generally begins in winter after the previous season's growth. The branches in this uh, season become very woody and very dry and they go into a state of dormancy and it's in this process that I will prune the grapevine right down to its little spurs and it's from these uh, spurs that the new season's growth will come. Each spur um, sends out two branches or two buds will break and form two branches and from those two new branches you will get two new bunches of grapes per and so it is very important to prune down and prune back to these spurs in preparation for spring. When spring arrives, your buds break and new branches begin to grow. With each bud break, you can expect two flowers to unfold um, with the new branch. These flowers go on to be pollinated in spring. You can expect the flowers uh, to begin forming into bunches of grapes once they have been pollinated. Ideally, you want cool, slightly damp, and not overwatered soil for the grapevine to live in. Grapevine roots tend to hunt for water, so you want them to go as deep as possible and not to stay around the surface. Uh, towards midsummer, your fruit should be nice and full and will begin to ripen. The growth of the vine will be quite full at this stage, so it's important to thin it out a tiny bit to ensure that some sun makes it through to your fruit to help it to ripen. Summer can be quite overcast and humid here in Durban, so the more sun and airflow that you can get to the fruit, the better. 
in Durban, we have a lot of fruit-eating birds and the specific beetle that loves to eat grapes. I've learned this the hard way over two seasons of fruit growth. Every year, I now wrap netting around the entire vine uh, the moment the grapes start to change color. This stops the birds from feasting on the grapes. And to stop the beetles, I use an organic garlic-based uh, pesticide, which has worked very well to keep them away. Next, um, you'll see that your grapes are nice and ripe uh, when they start to taste sweet. If you're happy with the sugar content, it's harvest time. A nice set of sharp cicatures are all you need to snip them off the vine. What you do with the fruit after harvest is completely up to you. So these are some key points that I've learned over the years for you to take away. The amount of fruit that your vine produces depends on how you prune it. A wild, untended grapevine hardly produces fruit. Its lack of structure can cause it to produce a fraction of what it's capable of. However, producing too much fruit from a grapevine can cause the vine to burn out after a couple of seasons and cause it not to bear future fruit. It's a plant of fine balance, but once you get it, it's hugely rewarding. Overall, it needs to be tended by somebody if it is to produce the fruit that it's capable of producing. Second point, it needs weekly attention. One week of non-observation could result in a little creature eating all of your fruit or your leaves, as well uh, as was the case um, that I found with my encounter with the beetle. The objective of a structured vine is to produce fruit. Trellis growth or canopy cover can be a beautiful sight, um, but the point is to produce a harvest which brings more joy than lots of leaves could ever. When it comes to pruning away the growth in winter, you have to remind yourself um, that it's for an increasingly better harvest and never for the growth itself. Vines are plants of quality, not necessarily quantity. Fourth, the fruit needs water. Dry regions in our uh, country provide excellent conditions for growth, but grapevines still need a lot of water for fruit growth. If you're in a dry region, make sure that you water them and have some kind of irrigation and keep ample mulch around the trunk to ensure the soil doesn't degrade and dry out in the heat. And then last point, growing a vine is a process. It can take three years for a small cutting to grow and be trained before it begins to produce fruit. But the process is totally worth it. Thanks for that, Jesse. And I hope as he shared, um, you learned something a little bit more about the work of a vine dresser or just how to bear fruit. And I hope that does help us just have fresh lenses as we get into the passage for today. But more than that, one of my main hopes with what Jesse shared is that we would see the hard work, the care, the intentionality, the protection that the vine dresser has with the vine to be able to produce that fruit. And I want you to see that, that a lot of effort goes into bearing fruit, but it's not the effort of the branch so much as it is the effort of the vine, who is Jesus, and of the vine dresser, who is our Father in heaven. So that's what we're looking at this morning in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, like we said last week, John 15 is not a complicated passage. It's a simple, straightforward message. And our message for today is pretty simple when it comes to bearing fruit or fruitfulness. Really, this passage only says five things. Firstly, fruitless branches are removed and thrown into the fire. Secondly, fruitful branches are pruned so that they will bear even more fruit. Thirdly, the only way to bear fruit is by abiding in Jesus. And fourthly and fifthly, producing fruit both glorifies God and proves that we are disciples of Jesus. But this morning, I want to focus on something very important from verses 1 and 2, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. And now we spoke about that a lot last week, about abiding in the vine and the vine being Jesus and him abiding in us and and the intimacy of relationship with God and union with Christ. But he carries on and says, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And as Jesse has spoken about this morning, we see the the care, the intentionality, the protection, the, the work of the gardener to bear fruit from the vine. But what we see here is that the gardener in our lives, the one who tends to our branch, is our Father in heaven. He is the one who is tending and caring for us out of his great love for us. But at the same time, what we see in these verses is that our Father, the gardener, is also the one who prunes us. You see, a wise vine dresser doesn't just let the plant grow however it wants, just wildly go about it. No, they need to tend to and take care of the vine. That means that sometimes they need to intentionally and deliberately come in with the secateurs and remove things from the branches and from the vine. Things that are getting in the way of deeper fruitfulness or deeper intimacy with God or bringing more glory to Him, which should be what every Christian most desires. And like the branches in Jesus' story, you and I, we're we're all unique. And our pruning is not going to look the same. But what we do see here is that pruning is an essential practice of God towards every one of his branches. That means everyone will be pruned at some time in their life. Maybe it was in the past. Maybe it's in the present. Maybe it's in the future. Maybe it'll be a number of times throughout your life. But God is in the work of pruning our lives that we may bear even more fruit. And this morning as we get into this message, I'd just love to stop for a second and ask you these questions. The first is, can you think of a time that God has pruned your life or something that God has pruned from you? And secondly, maybe right now God has his hand on you and he is gently but firmly clipping and removing something from your life that he doesn't want there anymore. I want to ask you, what is that thing that he is removing from your life? Now let's get honest about pruning. One expert to another. Pruning involves secateurs, involves cutting, it remove, involves removal or severing. And the branches and the gardener don't have this cute little heart-to-heart where the branches say, listen, Mr. Gardener, please don't touch this part. You can have this, but don't prune this. I'm kind of feeling this at the moment. I'm into this. 
Now, what the gardener does is he comes and he examines the branches and the vine and he decides what he needs to remove for greater fruitfulness. And then he cuts that away. And the pruning of the gardener feels like dying. It feels like loss. And it doesn't just feel that way. It looks that way. It looks like death and loss. I've been looking at some before and after pictures of pruning, preparing for this message. It's not a hobby of mine or anything. But looking at a vine or a rose bush or a plant that has been pruned and seeing it before the pruning, it's just two completely different plants. You would much rather be the pre-pruned plant because it's greener, it looks healthier, there's plants or, sorry, there's uh, flowers or there's fruits or something on it that makes it look healthy and alive. The pruned plant often looks really cut down. You know, it can look twig-like because all the, all the greenery is gone from it. It doesn't look healthy. It might not even look alive. But that is the plant that is being prepared for greater health and greater fruitfulness. Which means that pruning or being pruned requires huge amounts of trust on our part. Because when it happens or when it's happening, it doesn't feel or look good. It's not a good experience. And for our fruitfulness, we see in this passage that we need to allow God to come in and remove certain things from our lives for our good so that we can bear more fruit. But that means that we need to trust Him as He prunes. That means that we need to trust Him when the blades come in and the cutting begins. We need to trust Him when things get hard or things get sore. We need to trust Him that um, even in the pain of the process, that we will not give up, but that we know that He is a good Father and that any cutting or removing that He is doing from our lives is for our good and that He is doing it as a skilled and expert gardener. Pruning is not punishment, Harbor City. Pruning is the act of love performed by our Father towards us that we may grow and bear more fruit. And really for us as Christians, we should be familiar with and okay with something that looks and feels like loss and death being a good thing. I say that because right at the center of our faith is a cross. And on the cross, we see the death and loss of our Savior, the the one who died for the sins of the world. And he died in the most violent and brutal way imaginable. But what God does is he comes into that place of pain and he turns something terrible and tragic and brutal and hard and he turns it into the moment of greatest life and hope in the history of the world. But before the resurrection comes the crucifixion. And for you and I, before greater fruitfulness must come the pruning. And because of that, it means that we need to submit ourselves to the pruning of the Father. But often when that pruning happens, the things that God wants to remove from us are not the things that we want to give up. You know, often the things that he is wanting to take from us are the things that we are holding onto most tightly. And that actually we realize that we are trusting in and hoping in and and living for even more than Jesus. Now, there's plenty of examples of this throughout the scriptures. Plenty of examples of God wanting to uncurl people's fingers from the things they're holding on to so that they can take hold of more of him and abide in him more and bear more fruit for him. For instance, in Genesis chapter 22, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, are you willing to give up and sacrifice your, your son Isaac? And Abraham says, yes. He's willing to let go of this promised child, the one who he had waited decades for, the one who God has promised he will bring multitudes of people from, that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sands in the seashore. This Isaac is that child of promise. But Abraham believes God that even if he is to remove the son Isaac and that he is to die, that God could bring him back to life to fulfill his promise. How great is that level of trust? What about Mary in Luke chapter 1? 
God appears to her and says, Mary, would you be willing to carry the Messiah? Would you carry Jesus and be his mother and raise the boy who will be the savior of the world? And Mary says, for sure. You know, be it according to your will. I am your humble servant here to serve God, whatever you would have me do. And it's the most incredible thing for this young, probably a teenage girl who was a virgin engaged to be married to Joseph to submit to the will of God, knowing she'd probably lose her fiance, she'd lose her reputation in society. She doesn't know how she's going to get by, but she knows she's going to do God's will. She gives up her reputation to embrace the call of God and to take hold of what God has taken hold of her for. And thirdly, what about Jesus and the rich young ruler? This man comes to him to speak about eternal life. And Jesus says, it's simple. All you need to do is give away everything you have and sell it and give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. And that man went away sad because he was wealthy. His identity was wrapped up in his wealth and his social standing and his power and his security and all of the things that money associated for him. And Jesus says, would you give that up to come and follow me? Now, these are all powerful stories. Sure, we can relate to how we are connected to our family, how we're connected to our reputation, how we're connected to money and security. But Peter, the apostle in Matthew 16, has been an example of this detachment and attaching to God that I see that Jesus is doing in John 15 that I think speaks to me so significantly. And this story starts in a really positive way. In verse 16, uh, Jesus asked him a question. He says, who do the people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Now, I'm pretty sure Peter felt really good about that. You know, his chest puffed out, got a little bit of swagger in his step because he was going, I got this one right. Jesus just said, I'm blessed. He had this like really strong teacher's pet energy going on in that moment. But almost straight away, things go wrong. Jesus continues, and in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Getting that one answer right on a pretty lowball, simple theological question seems to have gone to Peter's head. And now... He pulls Jesus aside, maybe condescendingly has him under his arm, just going, come with me, my boy, I want to have a conversation with you. And Peter tells Jesus off, tells him that he's wrong, and tells him the right way. Now, if if you ever do that, if you ever pull Jesus aside to tell him off, to rebuke him, tell him the way things should be, there should be like a red light flashing on your dashboard, like danger, danger, pride, pride. But Peter is completely blind to his own arrogance in this moment. And Peter clearly had a very specific way that he thought the Messiah was going to operate and what he was going to do. You know, he's right about Jesus. He knows that he's the Messiah, the son of the living God, come to bring his kingdom in the world. But the way he thinks he's going to do it is completely off. You know, he thinks for Jesus, what's next? Is he must overthrow Caesar, overthrow the Roman Empire, take down the Sanhedrin, take out any opposition that is left and come in as the king, as the Messiah. And Jesus starts in verse 23 saying they need to go to Jerusalem. And Peter goes, I'm with you, Jesus. That sounds right to me. Jerusalem is a key place of strategic importance. Let's go. Once we get to Jerusalem, we can launch our attack on the Roman garrison that's based there. We can take out the opposition. You know, we can go and overthrow the temple and we can install you as the Messiah, the King. 
But what Jesus says next is completely the opposite to what Peter had in mind. Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem, which Peter accepts. And he says that there he is going to suffer and be killed, not kill others, and be conquered, not conquer others. And that he's going to be crucified. And then on the third day, he will rise again. This goes against everything that Peter assumes that the Messiah is going to do. And he's not happy about it. This is not the plan. This is not what he had envisaged. So uh, Peter pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Now that word rebuke in English is obviously a strong term. In the Greek it is too. And that is actually the word that Jesus would use when he was casting a demon out of someone. The, the strong authoritative rebuking language of casting out a demon. This is not a moment of faith for Peter. Like, like you would be really misreading this moment if that's what you think. That Peter thinks that Jesus is just a bit down, you know, he's feeling a bit discouraged and he comes to put faith into him or encourage him and say, no ways, Jesus, that's not what's going to happen. We're with you. God's got your back. You're not going to be crucified. We're going to get through this. Your kingdom is going to come. That is not what is going on here at all. No, this is a moment of pride, of control, of defiance. This is a moment where Peter is standing in the way of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and where actually something inside of Peter's heart and life is being revealed that God wants to prune. Now remember, Peter is part of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's actually in Jesus' core inner circle, the, the three, Peter, James, and John. Those three have been with Jesus and seen things with Jesus that no one else has had access to. And Peter is someone who reckons that if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and they overthrow the Roman Empire and establish this new messianic age and messianic kingdom, then you know what? He's like one of the top dogs. He's probably going to have a pretty good promotion coming his way. You know, he reckons in Jesus' new government, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to have authority and power and influence and prestige and, and wealth, and people are going to know his name. So he's bet on the right horse. And he sees all of this happening if he just trusts in Jesus because Jesus, the Messiah, you know, he got it right. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to take him all the way to the top. But if Jesus' plan is to die and to be crucified, then what does that mean for Peter? Does that mean that he's going to have to die to the death of a martyr? Is he going to be crucified like Jesus? Is he going to lose out on that power and glory and success and wealth and influence in the new kingdom that he thought was coming his way? Maybe if we see that story through that lens, verse 23 makes more sense. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And it's just the most orky porks moment in maybe all of Scripture. You know, I read that and I just could never imagine myself as a leader speaking like that to someone. But at the same time, I know that Jesus is the perfect leader who led perfectly in every single moment. And that the fact that he's saying that to Peter is right in this moment. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, he's saying, Peter, you're out of your place. Get back in your place. You know, the proper place for a disciple is behind their rabbi, following as their rabbi, their teacher, their leader takes them forward. And Jesus is saying to Peter here, Peter, you're not calling the shots. Remember, I am the Messiah. I'm your rabbi. You are getting in the way. And more than that, you are getting in the way of the will and the way of God in this moment. That word Satan there means adversary. So we would be reading this wrongly if we think in that moment that Jesus thinks Peter is the devil or that he's possessed by a demon. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is calling Peter Satan or adversary 
because he means that Peter and his will are in direct opposition or in conflict with the will and the way of God in that moment. Now remember, Peter's the one who just chest puffed out, walking with a bit of swagger, like the strong teacher's pet energy. He was the guy who just got the question right. Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I know who you are. Peter is clearly a Christian. And on top of that, he's one of the key leaders in the new Jesus movement, the early church movement that is starting to spread throughout the empire. But still, there are some parts of his life that need pruning. And Jesus is showing us here that even his best followers, even the key leaders in the Jesus movement, can get in the way of what God is wanting to do because their minds are set not on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter saw who Jesus was. He had revelation from the Father in heaven. This wasn't just head knowledge. This transformed him. He was born again. But still, he didn't want to go the way of the cross. He didn't want to deny himself, and he didn't want to walk in Jesus' plan. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. I'm pretty sure there have been moments where you know what Jesus wants you to do, but you go, oh, I would much rather go this way. Peter in Matthew 16 is much too focused on his way, his will, his word, his wants, himself. He's got this tunnel vision. You know, this is what I want for my life. This is the way I'm going, and Jesus is going to get me there. Peter had these desires, these goals, these aspirations. But Jesus needed to play his part in Peter's plan. You know, and if Jesus didn't do what Peter wanted, then this was going to make everything fall apart. There couldn't be a crucifixion. There couldn't be a resurrection. There couldn't be the death of Jesus if Peter was going to get his way. It just wouldn't work. Peter has his mind set not on the things of God, the things of heaven, the things of the kingdom, but on the things of man, the, the things of the flesh, the things of himself, the things of this world, the things of his culture. He did not want to go the way of the cross, the way of Jesus. He wanted to go the way of self, the way that he thought would satisfy him best. And this morning, I want to ask you, I think this is a tender thing to ask, but are your minds, is your mind set on the things of God, on the things of man, the things of this world, the things of the flesh? Are you following the way of Jesus or are you following some other way today? So in the next verse, Jesus says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I get this. Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to become a disciple. He's talking to those who've been following him about how to follow him. And you can imagine they're getting a little bit confused. They're going like, what do you mean by this, Jesus? Now, there's been a lot going on. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Peter's like rebuke of Jesus. And then Jesus rebuking him and saying, get behind me, Satan. You can imagine almost the next thing just goes over their heads. And they have to say, Jesus, can we rewind and go back to that? What do you mean? If we are your disciples, what do you mean if we are your followers? We've been following you for ages. You've been calling us your disciples for ages. What do you mean if we we are, aren't we? And it's like Jesus is teaching them and us a really important lesson here. He's saying that we need to regularly reassess our relationship with Jesus. Are we following behind our Messiah? Are we following the rabbi? Are we being led by Jesus? Or like Peter, have we wandered off and we're doing our own thing? And, and we don't even know where Jesus is anymore. The idea here is what are you focused on? Have you got in mind the things of God? Are you walking in God's will? Or have you got in mind the things of man and you've wandered off like Peter? If, as Jesus says, we want to be his disciples, and we need to do three things. We need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross. And we need to follow him. 
which sounds so different to the voice of our culture and the call of our culture to be true to yourself, to follow your heart, to live your truth, and you do you. Now, if you think about those things, in a sense, Jesus' call to salvation doesn't conflict with that. You know, the fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, the fact that he is the Messiah, and he says, okay, would you put your faith in me? That, that doesn't clash with those things. But a call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The, the way of the cross, the way of self-denial and death clashes with the way of the kingdom of this world. To live a life of surrender and submission and yieldedness to God and his will, that is the way of Jesus. To deny ourselves sometimes the things that we want, to follow Jesus and trust him that as he leads us into the unknown and uncertain, things will be better for us. That is the way of Jesus. And to lay down or let go of our will, our plans, our our control of our lives, our ambitions, our decisions on the cross and walk with him. That is the way of Jesus. And as it says in John 15, to come before God, our Father, the gardener, and let him prune parts of our lives. That is the way of Jesus. And Jesus ends off this way, showing us why this is so good, why this is the way we should go. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, his life, his, his self? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, Jesus tells us that if we want to save our own plans, if we want to save our lives, if we want to go our own way, then we will lose our lives. He's saying this is a guarantee. If you think you know best, And if you think your way is best, you're wrong. It's a dead end. You will not find satisfaction if you chase after your own desires in your own way. He's not, uh, he's saying this because uh, not trusting in Jesus is not going to lead us to a place of happiness and health. It's going to lead us to dark uh, alleys and to dead ends. But he also promises us that if we will surrender our lives to God and trust in him, if we will yield ourselves to him, then we will find what we're looking for. We'll find satisfaction and happiness. We'll find life and life to the full. We'll find the life that is truly life. We'll find a contentment that grows more and more and more in him as we abide in him over time. Now, how many of us have learned that lesson the hard way and keep making that mistake? We don't trust Jesus with our decisions. We don't think he knows best. We don't think he understands modern life. We don't think he knows what we really want. or We think that he's holding out on us. So we go down our own ways, we, we try and get life and life to the full, and it lets us down and it proves to be death. But when we follow the way of Jesus, we find that life and it satisfies in him as we yield to him. This morning I want to ask you, are you going to follow Jesus and deny yourself and allow the Father in heaven, your gardener, to prune your life that you may bear more fruit and abide more in Jesus and bring more glory to God? Or are you going to go your own way? Because this passage is quite simple. Jesus says to us that if we want to abide, if we want to bear fruit, all we need to do is abide in him. It's, it's actually quite a passive thing that's going on in John 15. You know, branches bear fruit not by doing, according to John 15, but by abiding in the vine. And branches bear fruit not by doing, but by being pruned by the gardener, according to John 15. It's the vine and the gardener that do all the work for our fruitfulness. And I guess in our case, I want to ask you that today. Are you abiding in God? Are you allowing him to prune you? So I think this year has felt like a year of pruning for so many people. I don't know if you can relate to that. 
I think at the beginning of 2020, end of 2019, I was just joking that you were going to see all this lower hanging fruit about 2020, being the year of vision, the year of clarity, 2020 vision, you know, everything was going to come into place. And this year has just been like nothing anyone could have anticipated or expected. I saw someone share a meme online this week, which was just saying, you know, 2020 obviously didn't see anything on my vision board this year because none of it has come to pass. And really this year, so many of our plans have been scrapped. For so many of us, we've had to cancel or postpone important things in our lives. There's been uncertainty, there's been change, there's been disappointment. Some of us have lost jobs or income or security or like in the worst situations, even loved ones. And for those of us who struggle with control, this year has just been so out of our control that we haven't been able to do anything. Now, whether in all of this you're experiencing the pruning of God and he's refining you, or whether it's just the evil and brokenness and sinfulness of the world that is affecting your life, we've really only got two choices. We can trust in God and let him embrace us and lead us through, or we can run from him and try and do it in our own strength. And I want to say to us, Harbour City, today, would you be like reminded of the fact that your gardener, the, the one who prunes you, is your Father in heaven who rules and reigns over everything that exists, and that you are his beloved, and that he gave his son the most important thing he had for you. I took my five-month-old daughter, August, for a little daddy-daughter date uh, a while ago, and I pushed her to Florida Fields to the bar now. We, we got a little coffee. I had a cappuccino, she had an espresso, double espresso actually. And we just sat there and there was some live music going on outside and we just sat and we enjoyed. And after a while, time was ticking on, I needed to get her home just for a bottle, to change her, to put her down for a nap. And we started to go home. Now, August is a like a full extrovert like her dad. She likes to look out of the pram, see me, see people, see what's going on. But when the sun is on her, obviously I need to cover her with like a little blanket. And she hates that. She hates having the sun on her face, but she hates being covered by the blanket so she can't see. So we we're having this wrestle on the way home. She's crying because she doesn't like the sun, doesn't like the blanket. And then she starts to cry because she's hungry and she's crying because she doesn't want to be in the pram anymore. She wants to be held. And I'm pushing her home. And I'm thinking to myself, my girl, I wish you understood. I would move heaven and earth for you. I am taking you home to feed you and change you and give you a rest and take you out of the sun and all of those things. Everything I'm doing is in your best interest. I, I wish you understood. And I almost felt frustrated. I was like, August, I wish you knew. And I wish you would trust in me in this moment. And it was like the penny dropped for me then. Because 2020 for me, like I'm sure for many of you, has involved a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment, a lot of discouragement, a, a lot of what has felt like pruning as God has been at work in my life so that I would bear more fruit. And I've definitely cried. <laughs> I've definitely been unsettled. I've definitely been unsatisfied. I've definitely said, God, where are you? What's going on? Why is this happening? You know, why are you not meeting my needs? Why are you not helping me out? What is going on, God? And it felt like in that moment, it was like God was saying, Grant, you're an imperfect father to this little girl. I'm the perfect father. I know what I'm doing. Would you realize that like your daughter's in that pram crying, being pushed home so you can take care of her, you are in a pram too. And I am taking you where you need to go. I'm taking you to take care of you and give you what you need. I'm, I'm pruning parts of your life that need to be removed for greater fruitfulness. Would you trust me just like you want your daughter to trust you, even though she doesn't understand what's going on? Our Father in heaven is the gardener who prunes us. And he is the one who is pushing the pram, leading us where we need to go so that we finally get there, we will look back and understand what he was doing all along.
and all that you have endured over these last few months, there is an invitation from God to all of us to detach, to uncurl our fingers from the things that we are holding on to in this time, the things we're trusting in, the things that we are hoping in, and to take hold of more of him, to be able to abide in more of Jesus and to bear more fruit and bring more glory to God and see his purposes happen in this world. And as we trust in our Father, the gardener, and in what he's doing with our lives, even if it feels out of our control, he is going to bring greater abiding, greater fruitfulness, greater life, greater glory. This morning, I think for all of us, there's an invitation to trust God, the gardener, our Father, to trust him who calls you his beloved, even as he prunes you, because it is for your good. And as the response song starts to play right now, I just want to encourage you to to put out your hands and close your eyes. And if this is a moment where you realize you're holding onto some things too tightly and that God wants you to let go of them, would you do that now? Would you hand them over to him? Or if you realize that this morning you're not trusting him with your life, with your future, with your finances, with your job, your career, your kids, whatever it is, would you come to him and trust him with that? If he's calling you to do something that maybe you don't want to do, but it's to to bear fruit, it's something that he's calling you to, that you need to trust that he will work this for the good. Would you trust him and surrender that and begin to do that thing? Whatever this means for you today, would you surrender to him and abide in him and trust him and let the Father prune your life for his glory and your good?